the communities. It's 7 o'clock at night. That's right, 1,900 hours, and you're listening to the Polo Salguero Show, where the heat is on and we educate our community through interviews with professionals. Welcome back, folks, for another episode of the Paul Salguero Show. We will be here until 9 o'clock this evening. Um, we have a special guest uh, for the first half. And so I just wanted to get a couple um, kind of housekeeping things out of the way. So this will be uh, November 28th, obviously, right? It will be the last time we'll be on the air for Wednesdays um, from 7 to 9. Starting in December, we will be on air uh, every Saturday from 3 o'clock in the afternoon till 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, so if you're listening, just mark the calendar for that. Uh, next week, we will have uh, we have a full show next week already. But today we're going to have a special guest, Tamara Perkins, who is film director and producer, who was did a magnificent uh, documentary, uh, Life After Life. She's actually uh, she's going to be uh, calling in uh, for the well. She's on the line now on hold, so we're going to get to that. And then for the second half, we're going to do song requests, dedications. And talk about some news, maybe some sports. Uh, but first, let me see if I can get Tamara on. Tamara, are you there? Hello, yes. Oh, perfect. It worked. <laughs> all righty. Uh, so basically, recently, uh, first of all, let me get this out of the way. This is another housekeeping thing. David Angel just wanted to uh, for me to make sure I told you that he says hello. Wonderful. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing him in April. Absolutely. So David Angel kind of, we, we were talking about, well, my background is criminal justice. I have a master's in criminal justice, and uh, my concentrations was uh, a kind of mental illness, crime and justice, along with uh, forensic accounting and fraud examination. So I, I really enjoy learning all different aspects of our criminal justice system. And uh, one way that I think we can educate one is through kind of these conversations that we have on the air but also uh documentaries and so i was talking with david about this once and we actually were able to we're working on a a little project right now we actually went to a local um sheriff uh department uh correctional facility and we we were able to interview um a currently incarcerated individual along with the sheriff kind of so we got to see both sides of it and we're working on a little uh, film project ourselves and then he mentioned he mentioned uh, your documentary life after life and so I was able to, I reached out to you and I was able to watch it which is I mean to me it, it's really interesting because one it's literally uh, well, well we'll say well we'll get into it I don't want to I don't want to explain too much about because I want yeah kind of you to explain it to our listeners but uh, oh, for, I'd love to hear what you have <laughs> <laughs> but uh, for for starters, uh, some of our listeners may or may not know you, um, but first, thank you for coming on, and if you could give us uh, kind of like a little bio and uh, like experience on yourself and who are you and what you do. Well, okay. Well, I'm Tamara Perkins. Um, I am currently a director, producer, and now um, burgeoning screenwriter, um, but I started my career in tech, actually, <laughs> quite a while ago. Um, when we were playing games on PCs, and, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun uh, being in my early 20s and um, early to mid-20s and running around the globe working with uh, Microsoft and NVIDIA and all the big players, um, mostly in Europe and Asia. And um, so as a worldwide, I was a worldwide marketing manager and um, did a lot with partnerships and um, what they called like engagement and evangelism in the tech and the gaming um, space. But 
when the tech bust happened in 2001, um, you know, a few things happened. Um, well, first, I, I took a little time to regroup um, and got connected with, a, with a, an organization called uh, CARA, Grief Support. That was really significant because they um, were an organization that I had never heard of that had been around for over 30 years and provided free grief and trauma support to individuals and families. And um, my cousin killed herself when she was 17 and, and I was 21. And, and there, it was pretty traumatic because we were very close. And it was one of those things that I thought that I had, um, had dealt with. And getting involved with Kara. Um, you know, really helped me understand all the ways in which it was it was a process. You know, healing and um, and living with grief is, is definitely a process, and it it's also something that um, helps you see the world a little differently. Um, I guess, and hopefully, uh, you know, begin to see the gifts in, in those you maybe you know uh, people and and situations that you might not. So um, through that, um, so I, I started working mostly with youth and. Um, we had a lot of psychosomatic symptoms that were coming up in our young people, and I had also started um, teaching yoga. So I'd like to say it was me, but it wasn't. My colleague asked me to uh, bring in some of the yoga and mindfulness techniques into the program, and it was incredible um, how how much the, the children took to it and um, how well it worked, and we actually ended up um, bringing it to the adult groups and to our retreats. and. Um, and kind of through that, two things happened. I, I ended up helping organize a, a free grief camp for kids who maybe didn't have access to being able to do, go to regular groups. And I also um, helped co-found this organization called Naroga, teaching yoga and mindfulness in schools and um, juvenile halls, really focused on um, healing trauma. And uh, through that, was asked to teach yoga at San Quentin State Prison. And... Um, it, it really, it really blew my mind the first time I walked into San Quentin because I, on a Thursday I had been teaching yoga, you know, with young people in a, in a juvenile hall and, um, you know, just seeing all the things they were dealing with um, at home in their communities, um, and you know, really kind of trying to do be part of, you know doing anything we can to help make it um, possible for them to be successful. And then the next day, walking into San Quentin State Prison and, um, you know, really seeing this big version, you know, of those young people, uh, grown men that had had never received the kind of healing that they needed. They had never received the kind of support that they needed. Um, it was just so much trauma. And there was also a lot of healing that was happening for those who had been able to come together and uh, begin uh, to, to do the work on, on themselves and, and, and with, with each other um, to begin to really unpack a lot of that trauma and figure out how to begin healing and uh, moving forward, even if they were never going to be able to come home, um, because they knew that, that any healing that they did and anything that they learned, they could, they could bring that back to their families you know, from there. Um, and that was one of the things um, that they were doing through a health, this health fair that I was asked to come teach yoga at. And um, I was just so moved. I was so moved. And so after that, I, I started teaching yoga every Friday at uh, St. Quentin with this group. Um, 
of men who were uh, serving life sentences and um, due to the current political situation were not likely to come home, uh, at least not anytime soon. Um, and about a year after I started teaching yoga, they found out that I was also starting um, you know, to, to do some, do some media work and had done a, had done a, a short narrative film and I uh, was thinking about doing others. And so they asked me to tell their story. So that's where life after life started. So I guess I, I wove everything together, but to, for me, it all, it's all connected because, um, you know, each of these experiences kind of fed the next one. Um, what, what? That's who I am. Absolutely <laughs> wonderful. So we're going to, uh, it was kind of perfect timing because now we're getting ready for our, our first break. But already, folks, we're in studio with Tamara Parkins, who is, uh, has had quite the, the life. I mean, working on a bunch of stuff and has done a lot. Um, well, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we get back, we're going to talk more about uh, her documentary that she made, uh, Life After Life. And uh, we will get in more into uh, the documentary, what, what kind of what it was about, uh what she learned, and kind of we'll, later on, later on, we will get to uh, kind of the current projects and what else is going on. So stick around. We will be right back after these messages. On January 10th at 4:30 p.m. at the Attleboro Library, Gabriela Vieira of Webster Bank will present a workshop titled "Preventing Elder Financial Abuse: The Incidence of Financial Exploitation of Elders and Vulnerable Adults Is Growing Nationally." Fraudulent telemarketing schemes and scam artists increasingly target elders, resulting in significant financial losses. This workshop will provide an overview of the signs and symptoms of financial exploitation and fraud, and strategies for protecting assets. If you are interested in attending, you can call the Attleboro Council on Aging at 774-203-1900. You sit down at your table, you get your card. 25 squares hold the key. Which one will it be? I-25, O-72, or Lucky B-13? Which one will be the square that makes you jump up and shout, Bingo! The Attleboro Elks Lodge, 1014, hosts Bingo each Sunday at 887 South Main Street. Open to the public, the kitchen opens at 5 p.m. with a variety of food available. Bingo starts at 6 p.m. Prizes are awarded and proceeds support Elks Charities. For further details, you can visit attleboroelks.org or you can call 508-222-5502. Remember, Elks care, Elks share. When I was little, I didn't talk for a long time. I like things to always be the same. Anything new or different would scare and upset me. I was very sensitive to lights and sounds. It was almost like I had bigger eyes and ears than everyone else. So I built secret hiding places where nothing could get in. I didn't like looking people in the eye. It made me feel uncomfortable. I'd throw big tantrums over little things like when my socks didn't match. Sometimes I'd do the same things over and over. Until one day, I found out I had autism. My family got me help. Slowly, I learned how to live with it better. You can see signs of autism in children as young as 18 months. Early intervention can make a lifetime of difference. Learn the signs at autismspeaks.org signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. The winter season brings us a time for giving that transcends any social or religious walls in our society. It is a time we see the best in each other. 
This week on AACS, tune in to see the Salvation Army Red Kettle Kickoff, an honor tradition where volunteers collect donations throughout the season for those in need. You can watch this program and all of our quality programs from around the area in high definition on the AACS Roku channel. Welcome back, folks, uh, to the Paul Sargero Show. We will be here until 9 o'clock. Uh, today in studio for the first half, we are talking about Tamara Par- uh, Perkins. Uh, Tamara, are you still there? Hello? I apologize. I'm here. Oh, <laughs> I got scared from. Her. I was like, I look. It says it's on air. It says she's still here. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> no worries. Okay, awesome. So uh, briefly, you came. You you talked a little bit about uh, kind of your background, in your intro into um, kind of the, the correctional, uh, the criminal justice system, kinda. Uh, and we're talking about your documentary, Life After Life. Uh, so one, the first thing to for beginners could, could you give our, our listeners uh, kind of like a summary of what the documentary is all about and then we can uh, kind of more delve into that uh, as the interview goes on sounds good yeah um so i as you kind of understood that i came to all of this from this um kind of restorative justice and restorative practices background and um you know so when when i was asked to to make this film my first you know it was it was thinking about what is it what is it that I haven't seen what what is it that I think um, I would really enjoy making um, and by the way I thought that this was going to be a film that I would make in one or two years um, I had no idea it was going to be something that we worked on for 10 years so um, it was definitely something that was evolving but um, the film um, practically follows uh, three men who are incarcerated uh, as teenagers and then spent 10, 20, and 30 years in prison. But it's really about, uh, you know, child, unaddressed childhood trauma, the impact of absence on families, uh, the additional trauma that is, that men and women who are incarcerated um, go through while, while in prison. Um, And then, you know, that precarious journey home and, uh, trying to reconnect with family, all of which are paralleling on their own, but together um, and, and connected with coming back to a world where some have said it's like being thrown on, you know, thrown on to Mars, like you don't understand what's happening. You've been in a completely different kind of world for, for 10, 20, or 30 years. Um, and to put that in perspective, when Noel, who's in the film, uh, when he was incarcerated, there were eight check tapes. I would assume that there's probably not, <laughs> probably a lot of people that are listening that don't know what those are. So, I mean, just to understand the difference in the practical realities of life, but then in addition to that, um, trying to restore families and, um, and build a successful life on the outside. So I felt like there was something that, that really needed to um, help us to go on a journey, um, you know, with these men and family members. So that's, that's what Life After Life does takes you on a journey it sure does i know uh for me like i said it, it's just so interesting to to see the different the three different individuals and y- y- like you said it's a journey you're you're literally seeing what, what they've what they're experiencing yeah. throughout there at that time um i kind of well, my next one was kind of what, what motivated you to make it but we kind of uh did talk about that uh a little bit uh, one thing i wanted to ask before i forget uh, what was because just because I was just talking to David about this too before uh, he left, uh, what were your initial 
uh, kind of thoughts, your first time uh, being in uh, San Quentin and actually seeing it for the first time inside? Well, I mean, it was, you know, first of all, I was terrified to go into uh, a prison, any kind of um, correction facility. I mean, I personally had had a gun to my head four times before I was 18 and been the victim of assault and um, and armed robbery. Um and I also, you know, have, have seen the impact of, of incarceration on my family. So when I first walked in, um, you know, I was completely on guard. In fact, I had nightmares um, that, that night before. But I got up in the morning and I, I basically did a loving-kindness meditation. It sounds super, super hokey, but um, I needed to get myself into a space where I was ready to come in and, and um, be open and... and you know, provide this healing practice of, of yoga. And what was so incredible, um, you know, was that I was greeted by these men who, uh, you know, the only way you know that they are the, the ones who are incarcerated is by what they're wearing, the blue shirts and jeans. Um, so kind. I really felt like I was being treated like a grandmother, and I was young, <laughs> so I mean, uh, it was. It could have been very different, and I was I was ready for catcalling and whatever, and and definitely get you know that was something that I was I was I was worried about. I was worried about safety. I was worried about comfort, and I, I felt so comfortable. I had amazing conversations um, with several of the men, Darnell, Noel. Um, I think I even spoke to Harrison a little, but he was he was a little quieter. Um, in the beginning, and um, definitely Earn and other people who didn't end up being in the in the uh, documentary. But um, I think the other thing that was really incredible is that it's like a city. It's huge. There's a whole area that's devoted to the chapel area. So there's um, all the different faiths uh, included. Um, and then I think even more, I don't know, stark, is that you had when you when you walk into the first courtyard after several locks and keys and um, corridors, you end up in this courtyard that's somewhat lovely. And on the right hand side, you have all of the faith groups, the chapels, um, and then on the left hand side is Adseg and Death Row. It, it's it, it's a really harrowing. I can't really explain what that's like to really understand where you are um, and to have that be flanking you as you walk into a space and to know that people are seeing that every time they walk to their 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 face center. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was there. There are so many things. Honestly, I, I I can't talk about all of them, but those were those are two that I still think about. Still think about that to, to walk into a chapel and or walk out and then and you're looking at uh death row Exactly. Yeah, that, that's something. Uh, like I said, when Dave and I we, we uh, toured in um, like a local jail, but it was just a, you know, it's um, it's it's like a, it, it's a sheriff's a, a correctional facility. So it's uh, I believe it's the max is probably two and a half years that um, you know those that are incarcerated are, are serving there. Uh, but 
yeah, I just want to ask the, the feelings because I think it kind of puts like a personal um, connection to like a listener listening and as you're describing what it was, what that's like. Um, now, making the documentary, you follow uh, three uh, uh, three men throughout their uh, time incarcerated, and later on as they're released. Uh, did you? All, how many people were you considering or you interviewed for it? And how did you ultimately decide the three stories that you uh, you picked? Um, you know, we, we interviewed about eight men. Um, and, uh, I mean, they were all incredible, um, their stories and, and, you know, just who they were and the work that they were doing. Um, you know, both inside the prison and to support and um, their families and youth. I, most of the people that I interviewed were involved in um, these youth mentorship programs um, where young people from the surrounding cities are brought in for um, not really scared straight, but more, um, you know, a program that uh, tries to get young people to talk about what's going on, you know, um, in, in hopes of... of diverting them from um, harm and or, you know, getting involved in gangs or more involved in gangs or violence. Um, so there was just, a, it's just incredible, um, you know, what, what all of the, the men were doing. Um, as far as, like, who we ended up including in the film, part of that was, um, was who we had the most access to, but mostly it was because... Um, Noel and Harrison were released within three months of each other. Uh, what's really incredible about that is that Noel um, and Harrison sort of uh, they always they always kind of kept up kept showing up in the right place at the right time for filming because although we did get a lot of access uh, to film within the prison, it's still you know it's still good. Like I think we actually ended up filming for like twelve hours one day and. To just put that in perspective, you you didn't really have access to bathrooms or water or food that entire time, so it was it was pretty harrowing <laughs> trying to do this and stay present and to focus the entire time. And we did that for a couple weeks, and we did it a few different times, um, and then you know some went off. But you had to really get everything you could while you were there, and um, they were there the most. But somehow the politics shifted and. The two of them were uh, released within, like I said, three months of each other. And it wasn't until they were both home that I found out that they had been like brothers inside for the previous 10 years. Um, and having each other um, in, those, in those early years was, was just incredible. In the early days, weeks, months, years were so incredibly important for them um, in supporting their success. Absolutely. Alrighty, folks, we're in studio with Tamara Perkins, who is a filmmaker, director, producer, and we're talking about a documentary she made, uh, Life After Life. We discussed kind of her background so far, uh, a brief summary, and kind of uh, her motivation behind this, and also uh, uh, the interviewing uh, process. So we're going to take a, another a quick break, then we will get more into uh, specific um, concepts of the, the film kind of, and then later on her current projects what they're doing and kind of what the goal of Life After Life is 
and uh, what they're kind of striving for afterwards. So we're going to take a quick break, uh, and then we will be we will come back and uh, cover more. So uh, stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Caring Santa is on his way to Emerald Square Mall on December 2nd. Caring Santa is a private photo experience for children with special needs and their families. Children will have the opportunity to visit with Santa and have their photo taken with him. Emerald Square Mall will make necessary adjustments to the environment to support the sensory, physical, and other developmental needs of children of all abilities for this special event. Caring Santa will be at the mall on Sunday, December 2nd from 8 to 10 a.m. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. For over 47 years, Amigo Inc. has been offering services and programs for children and adults with autism spectrum disorders and other disabilities. Located at 33 Perry Avenue in Attleboro, Amigo has been committed to building vital relationships while expanding their community ties on the local level. Amigo provides day programs, transitional planning, and a continuum of services to support all ages. For more information, you can visit their website at amigoinc.org. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paul Soul Girl Show. We will be here until 9 o'clock. Uh, today's interview, uh, we are interviewing uh, Tamara Perkins, who is a director, producer of uh, the movie, the, the documentary, um, Life After Life. We're talking about her background, her experience, uh, kind of motivation behind it, and then we uh, gave like a brief summary of what the documentary is. Uh, Tamara, are you still with us? I am. All right. I always, I always double check because phone interviews, you never know. <laughs> Sometimes you might lose a line or something. Um, there's there's a movie that always, like, it was kind of, it was one of the first movies that I saw uh, involving our criminal justice system. And it was a Shawshank Redemption was a movie that, uh, I, it was one of my first movies that I saw involving criminal justice. And, and then as I was in college, we were learning about, you know, um, this is always a tongue twister for me. Institutional, institutional, uh, institutionalization, and you know the the idea that uh, those that are incarcerated kind of get used to that same lifestyle. And then you know, in in Shawshank, we see uh, I believe the the character's name was Red when he gets released, and he was he was just so used to that lifestyle. And there were certain parts of this documentary that that kind of uh, stuck out to me and. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I think I remember the, it was Harrison that mentions like catching a bus for the first time uh, while he was released. That was kind of uh, nerve wracking. And then I believe it was Noel that mentioned he was uh, more used to prison than life and that he never really settled in. I never settled in yeah. being one, uh, one of his quotes. Was this, is it, you know, was this a, kind of a common trend that, uh, 
that you experienced interviewing uh, those that were incarcerated? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I don't know if you remember that moment when Noel comes home and there's a yellow line. And, you know, once he crosses the yellow line, then he's really, you know, outside of the prison, um, which is something that I know that, you know, not just now many of the men that were in my yoga class um, and that I knew from St. Quentin are home or, you know, and also I had a film school in St. Quentin, so I got to know a lot of the guys who were who were incarcerated who are now home. And one of the things that always comes up, two things. At 4 p.m., it's hard not to remember that that was the time when you had to come out of your, your cell to be counted. Um, so that was every day. Uh, it, it just, I don't know that... It always seems, I've been there during that time, and we had to stop everything, and, you know, people come in and they count you, da, 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 and it's just a real process. And, but the other thing is, of course, the lines. There are lines everywhere, and, you know, you can't cross the line, so there would be lines by the building so that they couldn't, you know, actually, if you're outside for a long time, you can't go lean on the building. Unless you can't cross, you can't cross the line, you have to stay outside. Um, and that was because there are uh, gun rails all the way around uh, the prison. So if you look up, you see you see the guards in the towers and walking. You know, with there's no guns on the ground, but they're all up walking around the prison. And um, yeah, sorry, it's bringing up for me. I remember one time being in inside uh, the prison, and there was in one of the housing units. You can see out. Uh, to the, this beautiful view of the bay, and right next to the window is no warning shots fired. Wow, that's uh, that's uh, that's I, I don't even know what the, what the word I'm looking for. It's just the, the I don't know a shock. I guess it's uh, puts things in um, in perspective and to, sh- to kind of to show people that this is it's it's happening to to a a real person you know that's um that's kind of why i always like to ask what someone's emotions were or even when uh you know dave and i work on the project it's like like you said unless you unless you actually see what they're wearing they're you would never think anything else of it they're they're humans, you know, and that's uh, that's one thing that annoys me when you, you see on the news or whatever. And sometimes, uh, you know, they they're talking as if it's you know statistics and numbers when that's actual human being who's just you know things just happened. Um, mm-hmm. uh, moving uh, forward, what were some of the the most challenging elements that uh, that those that were incarcerated that you, you met uh, that would that their biggest challenge being released, like they, that they were worried about as they were gonna, going to be released? I mean, I think probably the, the main survival, um, you know, things were like first, I mean, where are you going to live? Um, how are you going to support yourself? Um, you know, how, how do you make sure that you can get to your parole officer um, and make sure that you follow you know, the, the tens of thousands of rules that um, you know are that are hanging over you uh, as you're on parole. Um, I mean, I think those are probably some of the things that come up first. Uh, and then, of course, kind of connected with that is um, trying to balance 
this real desire to, to reconnect with family and to just live with this understanding that, that you need to go a little slowly, that you need to like figure out, um, you know, what's happening and, and how, how to, how to live and be safe because, you know, it is dangerous for you if you're formally, if you're, if you're formally incarcerated, if you're on parole, things that we wouldn't think twice about, they can get technically violated and sent back to prison. Jaywalking, riding your bike on a sidewalk, like just lots of little things that you have to be careful about. Um, one, one gentleman talked to me about the fact that he brought his wife, he had been in Folsom prison for a number of years and he brought, um, his wife to the Folsom museum and, um, you know, he wanted her to see where he had been, you know, a little bit more about himself, like in just in trying to like share. And, um, he found out that actually that was a violatable offense. He couldn't go into that museum as someone who was on parole. And thankfully, he was already connected with um, an amazing uh, legal uh, support agency called Root and Rebound, who was able to help him because, um, I mean, that would have been, uh, you know, he could have easily gotten sent back to prison for that. So, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's complicated. Um, and I don't think most people know, you know, that. I mean, they, they think, oh, they'll just come home and get a job and, um, you know, there's all of this and there's the emotional impact of, of coming back to a world you don't recognize or understand. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was uh, one more thing I wanted to ask. In, um, in, in filming this, what were some of the the most surprising things that you learned about um, you know, those that were incarcerated that you were meeting and talking to, what were some of the, the most surprising thing or maybe an interesting thing that, that you learned after this documentary was made? Well, I mean, I think I'm still, I'm continuing to learn, right? Um, you know, now uh, my family member is home, but it was an eight-year process for us, um, spending time uh, visiting, you know, my loved one in, in prison in jail and um, I think that is probably what opened up my understanding the most since it was my family member who I know and love and um, and deeply understand how talented and loving and wonderful and, and sensitive a person they are um, but I think actually my, my incredible cinematographer Jesse Dana I mean, so talented um, just an artist with a camera and so sensitive and, and just a wonderful person, he would often say, um, you know, and it was hard going in there. Like, we, there's, it, it was hard to hold all these stories, right? But there was one person in particular, I think, that really, really got to him because he, he just felt like, you know, basically he turned left and I turned right, and here he is. Um, just really understanding that, that there is no difference um, between those who are incarcerated and those who are out here. The difference is, is, is related to environment, uh, circumstances. Um, there are uh, a lot of things like in, in institutional racism, and school-to-prison pipeline, addiction, trauma, generational um, abuse, and, uh, you know, and, and trauma. But if you really got to know the men, you saw that they were artists, 
they were lawyers. They were uh, salesmen, lots of salesmen. You know, they were um, poets, writers, filmmakers. I mean, just incredible, incredible talent and sensitivity. And um, for most of the men that I met, I, and and women at other at other institutions, were um, just had such an incredible sense of self because there had been so much time to really uh, look inward. And, um, and I mean, I, I think that's one thing I still think about today. We don't get that chance out here very often to really look inward. So in many ways, I feel like the men that I've met um, who are incarcerated, and this is not um, an endorsement for it at all, but they're much more um, uh, tuned in to who they are. They're much more clear. Um, they have a lot, much deeper self-awareness than, that, than most, most of us. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when you mentioned artists and poets because uh, during, I'm trying to think if it was during my grad or my undergrad, but our campus did a project, uh, Prison Art, and it was, they would showcase all different uh, paintings that were uh, made uh, with, uh, from those individuals that were incarcerated. So it was kind of really, it's an interesting uh, project, and it's, there are a few projects around, you know, southeastern Mass and, and even parts of Rhode Island here that are actually doing, showcasing different arts, different literature that's going on. And I think uh, I think you make a great point in, in explaining, like, their jobs because they are, like, that's one thing that annoys me. It's like, they're humans too, you know what I mean? It's just, it, their circumstance is just different than, than others, you know, and it's, uh, everyone has a story, right? That's the, th- I'm a firm believer in that. Everyone has a story and, uh, I forget what, how the saying goes. Um, every, well, go ahead. I will say that that, that is, is my focus as a storyteller and filmmaker is really, you know, working with um, those with lived experience to tell stories. Um, and in some cases it's me. Um, obviously I'm connected to this issue, but to really, um, to really understand it, we need to hear them. I mean, that's why there's no narrators or, or anything in the film. Like, we hear from them. They tell their story. It actually just blows my mind that they allowed themselves to be in the fishbowl for 10 years and now continue to work with me in doing um, engagement in the community and across the country. It's incredible. Yeah, you, you know, it's... And j- just because I, I was listening to another interview the other day of uh, an individual uh, who was... Uh, wrongly convicted and spent, I think it was 20 or 22 years on uh, death row and then was exonerated. His name was uh, Nick Yaris. And, mm-hmm. you know, just just to give people perspective that not every single person in there committed something, right? There's sometimes, it's just, it, that was one thing that amazed me. It's like, and, and there was a part in the interview where he says, when he was about to be released, they ended up putting him in a different cell because they said, uh, they, uh, what was the exact wording? Um, they said, we're going to put you in here for so long because uh, we don't believe that you're not angry towards us and we're, we're fearing for ourselves, you know? And uh, it, it was just, it's amazing, 20 to 22 mm. years, and then he actually, you know, finds himself and, and you know, he's, he's it's still like, uh, he has peace towards them almost, you know? And it's like, when I was hearing that, I'm like, that's tough. You know, if I was incarcerated for 20 to 22 years and I didn't do anything, I'd be uh, a little upset, <laughs> you know? Uh, 
But we're gonna take uh, we're gonna take a quick break because uh, it's a seven forty five break, folks. We are in we are uh, interviewing uh, Tamara uh, Perkins, who is a uh, director producer of Life After Life, which is a documentary uh, following uh, three individuals who were incarcerated and their life after life after they're uh, being released. And we're gonna take a quick break, and we'll come back. We'll talk more about the project, what the goal behind Life After Life is, and what, um, and then we'll just, we're going to wrap things up afterward, but we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back after these messages, so stick around. On Tuesday, December 11th, from 7 to 8.30 p.m., at an unlikely story in Plainville, Jackie McMullen will discuss her new book, Basketball, a Love Story. Many notable living NBA players were interviewed for the book, from Kobe and LeBron to Shaq and Barkley, from Magic and Bird to Bill Russell and Jerry West. The list of coaches in the book includes NBA coaches Phil Jackson and Pat Riley to college greats such as Coach K. The interviews are packed with never-before-heard stories, and you can hear them in person from Jackie herself. The event will be followed by a book signing. The following is made possible by Dad. Why was the basketball court all wet? Because the players kept dribbling all over it. (laughs) The Dad Joke. Corny, groan-worthy, but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids. Why do you have to be careful when it's raining cats and dogs? Because you might step in a poodle. (laughs) And kids that spend more time with their dads grow up to be smarter, more successful. Can I tell you a cat joke? Just kidding. <laughs> and with any luck, funnier adults. Why didn't the skeleton go to the dance? Because he didn't have anybody to go with. Dad jokes rule. So take a moment to make a moment and give your kid a laugh. <laughs> it's as easy as going to fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. <laughs> That's really funny. Staying at home, surrounded by family and friends, resting comfortably with your illness under control, and support for your family caregivers. That's what most Americans want at Life's End. Hospice can make it happen. With the help of hospice, patients and families alike can focus on what's most important, enjoying life together and living as fully as possible. Feel free to contact Community VNA Hospice at 508 222 0118. You can also visit communityvna.com for more information. Alrighty, folks, we are back to the Paul Saw Girl show. We will be here until 9 o'clock. Today's guest is Tamara Perkins, who is a director, producer of uh, Life After Life, which is a documentary that follows us three individuals who were incarcerated, kind of follows their story, and it really just tells their story. And um, for those that are listening, we've been talking about the, uh, the documentary, uh, Tamara's background, and we're going to, um, before I forget Tamara, uh, if someone's interested in watching Life After Life, how can they do so, and uh, how can they watch the film? Well, um, right now, the, um, the film is available for educational and um, uh, PPR, uh, public performance rights use. So basically we have universities across the country um, that are purchasing and sharing this film and using it in course- courses. So anyone in a university can ask their media library or professor to, to um, purchase the film. 
and um, it's available at lifeafterlifemovie.com. And the other way that people are watching it is through community groups, so they can contact us directly through the website, lifeafterlifemovie.com, or uh, actually Tamara, T-A-M-A-R-A, at lifeafterlifemovie.com. And that's been really incredible to see, um, you know, see groups coming together from uh, the ACLU to the National Park Service to uh, youth development groups um, and community advocacy groups uh, coming together to screen the film and um, to both use it for healing and for uh, motivating one another for action. And I've just been incredible. I've been so moved by the response. We actually had... um, We've been doing a lot of school screenings, like high school screenings, and one of uh, the young people at uh, a screening here in the San Francisco Bay Area actually wrote an I was inspired to write an article after watching the film and talking with uh, Noelle from the film and I. Um, and uh, I, I just, I'm so blown away. She wrote it um, in, in this, there's something called San Francisco Debug, and uh, it was, in, it was, written there and just she was somebody who's dealt with not having um her father in her life and um just talked about how healing it was to be able to have us uh come out and talk with her and like not feel alone and um you know really get to express what it's like um you know to to be someone who's uh whose whole life is really dealing with incarceration Absolutely. And if somebody wanted to um, search for Life After Life on social media, is there any way they can uh, kind of keep in touch with the, the project and follow it along that way? Absolutely. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Instagram. And it's um, lifeafter.com on um, Facebook and lifeafter underscore movie on Instagram and Twitter. But if they just search Life After Life or Tamara Perkins and either, they'll find me. Wonderful. There is, uh, you know, earlier you kind of mentioned the school to prison pipeline, which was something that I did quite a bit of research on. And I did uh, my Commonwealth Honors Project here when I was getting my, uh, uh, during my associate's degree when I was doing that. And one thing that was really interesting to me is that the Life After Life, you guys actually have an educational outreach project. Is that correct? Yes. We have a whole campaign. Mm-hmm. Could you, you, did you want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, that campaign, what it is, and kind of what's going on? Well, um, we, we've actually been partnering uh, with schools and have brought on, we've brought on an agency to put together a whole viewing guide and curriculum for the film. So um, what I think is really special about it is that everything that went into the guide and curriculum first came from... Um, those of us involved with the film, so Noelle and Deidre from the film and some from Harrison, as well as myself, um, you know, putting that together and then creating a a curriculum that is in line with all the Common Core um, so that it can be used uh, at the high school and uh, university level. And one of the other lesson plans that was created actually by a teacher at Oakland, um, Oakland Tech High School in Oakland, California, is an alternative justice design system project that um, is now, he's, he's offered out, so it's being shared with other schools um, and universities um, as, as a way of, of really engaging um, the students through the film to really think deeper about 
um, more uh, more successful and sustainable systems. Absolutely. Um, I know we wanted to mention too um, that I can't remember the beginning, but the Justice Sister uh, that that you mentioned to me earlier. Uh, could you explain a little bit about the? Oh, the right, yes, the, the, SE Justice Group, right. So I'm an SE Justice Sister, and um, that is uh, SE Justice Group is a an amazing organization that was founded in 2014 for women with incarcerated loved ones. Um, and this is really, you know, this is incredibly important, especially now because one in four women in America have an incarcerated family member. One in two black women have an incarcerated family member. And women are being, uh, black women are being incarcerated at twice the rate of, of white men and are increasingly now, um, uh, the, their incarceration is, is, is increasing at the highest rate. So um, we really work on creating sisterhood across the country, um, mostly focused in California now and beginning to branch out. I believe there's a, uh, we just opened something in, in Atlanta. Um, but it's really about providing support and um, and also leading actions. They were really behind, um, we were behind the, the no cash bail um, campaign that happened in California. Um, in some ways it didn't go exactly as we wanted in the end, but it has now uh, really made a, a dent across the country in thinking about um, why cash bail is problematic and um, unfair um, within our systems. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. Uh, the more reading I do and the more film I watch and the more interviews I get to do, I keep learning about all these different projects that are going on around uh, one around internationally and here and uh, mm-hmm. nationally, you know, it's just, it's amazing to see all the wonderful projects that are going on because, you know, it's to me through, uh, when you watch the the news quite often, they don't really showcase the best stories, you know, or the most uh, welcoming mm-hmm. ones. And it's, it's always nice to hear of projects like, like the ones you're mentioning in the project, the life after life to really see uh, the good that's being done out there, you know. Well, I mean, it's just important that we, you know, continue to come back to our connection and, um, you know, common humanity and um, and try to start from there. Um, I mean, I think that it's, there are a lot of reasons why we try to dehumanize. Um, and unfortunately, that, that keeps us from really seeing, um, you know, what's happening and and so I, that's why they, I think these stories are so important, and especially focusing on storytelling driven by those with lived experience. Like we need that, um, uh, and I, I hope to see more and more of it. <laughs> well, well, you're doing a good job at telling the stories, that's for sure. I can say that. Um, one thing, uh, another one of the well, – did you want to mention anything that we haven't mentioned uh, so far that, you wanted, that maybe you had in mind you wanted to cover that we didn't get to? I think we covered almost uh, everything. I think almost. I think that. I think the only other thing was like talking about some of the upcoming projects that we're working on. Yeah, uh, and uh, which I, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, if you could explain some of the uh, um, the upcoming projects you guys are working on currently, and maybe what can people expect to to see coming forward. Yeah, absolutely. So first, we're continuing the engagement with life after life and beginning to look into technologies to um, to 
to build and build communities and to share resources and um, you know really begin to to empower and support our communities that feel quite isolated. Um, this kind of came up because I've been traveling across the country and I meet so many incredible people and, and organizations run by, you know, justice-impacted um, individuals. And so often we, um, you know, we don't know about one another. So that's one of the things that, um, that we're working on is, um, you know, beginning to, to create a framework for connecting um, all of us. And, um, and then some of my other films, I mean, all of my projects come back to restorative justice, right? So um, I have another film that's looking at... Um, uh, child care, uh, the lack of um, affordable and accessible child care, and um, the role of gender, race, and class on our current system. And then I'm, uh, I'm actually working on a sci-fi screenplay that, uh, that is also looking at, um, well, let's just say that it's, it's, it's also focused on uh, tech and um, the role of race and class. Interesting. You know, yeah, there was... I took a course once, and because you, you mentioned restorative justice, and it's I took a course once that I thought I would never find interesting, and it was a biblical justice course, at uh, in my undergrad. So we, I, I went to Anna Maria College, so we had to take a Catholic worldview course for one of our our requirements, and so the biblical justice was kind of a. Uh, criminal justice slash like theology mix, right? So we talked about kind of the issues in the Bible and how some of it's like rele- still relevant to t- t- uh, today, and kind of restorative justice was a key uh, concept that always popped up. And it's interesting because mm-hmm. my my professor there was actually he used to teach. Um, I want to say he either taught or he had a program or something like that uh, at San Quentin too, but he had you know mm. then he moved to to Massachusetts and now he's actually in I- Italy teaching in Italy. But it was uh, it just keeps keeps popping in my head. So I was like, oh, I'll mention that before you forget, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's wonderful. And uh, so uh, another a little trademark that well, I can't say trademark because it's really not. But uh, a fun question that we I usually ask um, our guests and uh, kind of just someone new I meet, whether it's like a workplace or something like that. I always think it's a fun question to ask. And it's become like a little thing of our show. We usually end we usually wrap up with a question in that is. Uh, if if Tamara Perkins could talk to anyone from history, it could be you know current, past, whatnot, and ask them one question, who would you want to talk to, and uh, what would you want to ask them? Mm. Well, so I, I you had mentioned this, so I thought about it quite a bit, um, and you know one of the things that you know comes up a lot in um, in the work that I do in our sort of in, in my restorative justice community is, um, you know, this need to stay connected with and, and listen uh, to our ancestors. And, um, and I think that when I think about a question like that, um, it's hard for me to, uh, to nail down just one person <laughs> that I would want to, uh, to ask a question of, but I do think that in general it's so important for us to understand our history, understand um, and know those who came before us in the work, and then again to uh, to take the time to really listen for the many lessons of our ancestors. Absolutely. Um, wonderful. Is there uh, any other things you, you wanted to mention before we uh, 
conclude, I just want to say thank you again for uh, mm-hmm. accepting my invitation because it really it was something I, I was really excited for after watching <laughs> your film, and I, I kept telling David that today, you know, tomorrow's going to be on today, you know, and uh, and I <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I saw him. What day was it? I saw him. I saw him earlier in the week, and uh, he goes, "Who do you have on uh, this week?" I was like, "Tomorrow." He's like, "Oh, really?" And then I saw him again today, and he must be like, "This kid just doesn't shut up." <laughs> <laughs> Exciting, you know. What first of all, David is my you know colleague and um, just a, a really wonderful friend. Um, and also, you know, I was born in Boston, so I have some connection to the area. Um, so it's really interesting that that there's been a lot. I've actually been pulled back to the east quite a bit with the film, and uh, and yeah. So I was really excited to talk with you, especially here after hearing about your background, because it does seem like there's a lot of overlap. You know, my work is really about. Um, uh, you know, restorative justice and, and focus on, um, you know, trauma and healing. Um, it seems like there's a lot of similar work in your in your background. But, I mean, I think the last thing I would say is that, um, you know, I'm always happy to, to talk with folks about the work in, um, in the film. Um, but if they want to hear from Noel or Deja or Harrison um, or even Chris from the film, they can... They can actually connect with us on Facebook and, and ask questions, and, and they're connected to that. And so they can actually, you know, have a little bit more of a direct, um, yeah, connection with the guys. That's great. And the family members. Yeah. Absolutely. Alrighty. Um there was uh, one quote I wanted to, I finally found it. I was, I was going to say it earlier when we were talking about these stories. It was that mm-hmm. um, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. That was uh, mm. something that was told to me during my my undergrad, and it always kind of stuck in my head. And it was just uh, when you start thinking deep about it, it's like you know what? Yeah, you know that that makes sense. You know, so it just uh, I thought it would ma- I thought it made uh, it kind of fit into. I think the other thing, yeah, the other thing is that they're the same person. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, but already tomorrow, I just want to say thank you again for accepting the invitation and uh, involving uh, your projects or, or whatnot. If I can ever help you in any way, uh, please w- <laughs> let me know and uh, I'll be there. Same here. Thank you. Take care. Alrighty, you as well. Bye bye. Alrighty, folks. There you have it. We, that was uh, Tamara Perkins, who uh, was is a uh, director and producer of Life After Life. Uh, with documentary follow, following uh, three individuals that were incarcerated, were serving life sentences, and then you follow uh, their uh, literally life after life. And it was, I, I it was interesting. It, it's it's remarkable. She's doing a lot of great projects and continues to do 